This is Craig Morris, and you're listening to the Potsdam Summer School Podcast. Well, the most durable institutions that humans have built are cities. Cities are older than countries. Cities are older than families, older than dynasties. That's Andreas Kramer, senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. Today, we are going to talk about cities of the future. The global population is growing, and a larger percentage of people live in cities. That's good because living in cities is actually more efficient than living in the countryside. It's also bad because cities are more vulnerable to disruption. Think about it. If you are living in the country, you can grow your own food and you're pretty resilient. There's also a difference between building new cities from scratch, which will become more common, and expanding existing ones. Dubai, for instance, now has some 2.5 million inhabitants, but it only had 10,000 in 1900. There's a real push right now to build new megacities in China, India, and Sub-Saharan Africa. India alone may get around 100 of them. And all of these countries want to build not just megacities, but smart cities. The temptation is thus great to take best practices from one place and copy and paste them somewhere else. That doesn't always work, as we're going to see. Furthermore, what about people in rural areas? Is anyone thinking about them, or do we all have to move to the city? Before we address these issues, let's start off with a look at the past. A good example of how cities are older than everything else is Lviv. Now located in Ukraine, Lviv also has a Polish name, Lvov, a German name, Lemberg, and even a Greek name, Leopolis. The city was the capital of the medieval kingdom of Galicia, but has since existed in the Habsburg Empire, in Poland, in the Soviet Union, and now in Ukraine. Cities often outlive countries. It's easy to see why. If they are in the right place, roads are built to feed them, and they create literally path dependencies that sustain them over millennia. Once the infrastructure is there, once it has been built, it is very cheap to use. And it's not just the physical infrastructure, it's also the habits that people develop. Families organize themselves around that, professions organize themselves around that. Increasingly, people are moving to cities worldwide. If you look at the evolution, the um, additional between two and four billion uh, people who will be in cities, those um, city dwellers will be largely not in the rich countries of the north, but they will be in the uh, countries of the south. The global south is what diplomats now call the third world or developing countries. In the future, the main migration to cities will be people in the global south we will need to build new cities and there will be new cities. The existing cities are in some cases already too large, they've overextended themselves, they cannot be sustained. Um, so there will be new cities that have to be built uh, for about 
4 billion people um, over the next um, 80 years or so. 4 billion people is currently more than half of the global population at just above 7 billion. But up to 10 billion people could live on this planet by the end of this century. And while cities have been the most resilient things civilization has ever produced, they have always been vulnerable to environmental changes. And now we're going to start losing cities to climate change as well. We will lose a number of cities due to sea level rise and the rise of the low-lying riverlands. Um, the rivers will rise approximately in line with sea level rise. And that forces us to think about relocating the humans that live in cities that are currently on the coast or on low-lying rivers. Very often it is local environmental circumstances that make it impossible to rebuild a city even after it has been devastated by some um, uh, man-made or natural event. Let's be clear about the difference between the environment and the climate. Cities have died in the past, as we know from excavations, and almost always the reason was the environment. In the future, things will be different. The environment is local, the climate is global, so individual cities used to die. But from now on, lots of cities at once will be threatened. What is unique and new, unprecedented in human history now is that we have ubiquitous effect all along the coasts and all along the low-lying rivers and in the valleys and the mountain areas. We do see accelerated sea level rise, ex rising water levels, accelerating erosion and a higher um, incidence of floods, of flash floods, of mudslides, of rockfall. There are different dangers in the mountains, it's different from the coast, but we do see the higher severity and the higher uh, incidence frequency um, of extreme weather events taking a toll on cities in certain locations more than in others. And the most vulnerable we see on the news every day tonight are the coastal cities. In addition to climate and the environment, the sustainability of a city can also be thought of in terms of social aspects. In the last episode of this podcast on governance, we talked about how sustainability is not possible without equity and trust in public institutions. There are a number of um, social conditions that are necessary in order for our societies to live at peace with one another, to be productive um, and to be able to resolve the problems and to um, uh, undergo the transformational changes that are necessary in order to live within the planetary boundaries. This combination of internal societal social conditions and external environmental boundaries, that is um, what, as an abstract concept, um, uh, convinces me. Mm -hmm. I find it good for communication purposes, but I also find it a very good agenda if you think about how to organize city life. Another main point in Andreas's presentation at the summer school was that countries are often represented at the global level but cities rarely are. And yet, our biggest megacities are already larger than lots of countries. The biggest city in the world is Tokyo, with an estimated 33 million people. That's three times more people than live in Belgium. One participant, Onur from the Netherlands, wondered whether city mayors shouldn't be asked to take part more in climate negotiations. In the world, there are cities who have 
uh, carbon footprint as large as some uh, countries have, entire countries. So that gives a different angle, perspective into this whole discussion of climate change because the usual modus operandi is that states come together and make commitments. They are the, of course the main actors uh, legally and politically speaking, but if you look at what is happening in reality, cities have indeed a huge potential role to play. Andreas argues that cities bring together so many different groups with different values that don't always overlap, making cities breeding grounds for tolerance. And that is actually the cultural function of a city, is to enable people with very different ideas to live together, in some cases in parallel without disturbing one another, but in some cases together so that they can achieve something together that they couldn't achieve alone. It's absolutely amazing how our cities are both attractors um, of people with very different views, very different ideas of how they want to live their life, very different ideas not only about themselves but about the others. They come into these cities where we have an enormous diversity of all of those dimensions in very close proximity. It is having a volatile mix in a pressure cooker. And considering the potential for conflict, for misunderstanding and for conflict, I find it surprising how little violence we have in our cities. Not all of the summer school participants were happy with this praise of cities. You may remember Femi, a participant from Nigeria from a previous episode. He wondered whether the push for cities would leave rural people behind. I mean, I, I can see some kind of contrast here where cities are so driven by greed that they just want to face out rural areas. And at the same time, these indigenous populations also have the right to their own existence. The problem is not only one between cities and rural areas. The poor are sometimes driven out of historic city centers when these districts are modernized. Diana Mangalaju of Oxford University spoke about the example of Istanbul, where some residents had lived in buildings for so many centuries, they could no longer prove ownership. They had no papers, no deed for the property. The city district was then refurbished with new, more modern and efficient buildings, and many of these inhabitants were forced out. And they sent people at 70 plus kilometers out of Istanbul to live in so-called better housing. Diana is an expert on sustainable cities. She says she often gets asked the same question by global organizations. They say, oh, what are the best practices you can, you can take out of that so that we implement them everywhere? The problem is that a cookie cutter approach does not work. Just because an idea works in one place doesn't mean it will in another. Diana gave the example of Dakar. The city wanted to improve urban traffic and roundabouts seemed to work well in France. But basically, you know, they started putting all these uh, roundabouts absolutely everywhere. The problem was that a large share of the city's economy was street vendors. And the implementation of roundabouts proved disruptive for them. I mean, the street vendors, they needed to take some really long walks or, you know, bikes or whatever to go around. Uh, they, they, they prevented people from crossing at some point for safety reasons. This is a good example of decision makers not realizing what poor people's needs are. 
Bert de Vries of the Copernicus Institute in Utrecht says, money is always a bit blind, and that will be a problem for sustainability policies. The market tends to do one thing really well. It will focus, for instance, on people who have purchasing power, or briefly, the rich. And the technologies which will develop will be in that direction, even apart from all the military, who will also develop technology for their own purpose. What I'm looking for is not someone who says, forget about the market, doesn't work, forget about the state, doesn't work. What I think is really important is to find a proper equilibrium, a proper balance between the two. And what I've noticed since uh, the 70s working on this is that in the 70s we still had, for example, in the Netherlands, in Europe, a number of state companies who were providing energy and water, especially electricity and water. They have been privatized. And one of the things you can see, and not only in these sectors, is that to contain them, all the initiatives by those private companies required a huge amount of regulation. The Dutch eventually decided that the energy and water markets they had privatized now needed regulation to prevent market failures. Bert's main contention is that we have met our basic needs now, such as food, water, and shelter. But he says we pay too little attention to our higher needs, things like identity, meaning, respect, and happiness. Our basic needs are objective. Everyone can see whether you have a home or not. Higher needs are subjective. Are you steeped in culture? Do your hobbies give you a sense of purpose? Economics is better at measuring objective things. For instance, GDP, which is gross domestic product, measures money changing hands. We are not doing so poorly in increasing GDP worldwide, and we are also decreasing hunger globally. But at the same time, Bert points out that increasingly, more people will suffer from obesity than from famine. We haven't been paying enough attention to diseases of civilization. Happiness cannot come from more of everything. In the poor countries, the last 20 years, unlike in the previous period, the last 20 years, their uh, well-being has increased faster than their income in terms of GDP per person, which is interesting because it suggests that their life is becoming better at a higher rate than their formal monetary GDP growth. Mm -hmm. And my hypothesis is, but it's only a hypothesis, that some of these high-tech advances, including some medical advances, including some educational advances, facilitated by, for instance, mobile phones and smartphones, are playing a role in here. Anyway, one, one uh, reason to think this is the experiences in uh, a country like, or region like Africa, mm -hmm. where the mobile phone, in combination with, for example, a Waka Waka, which is a very simple device to charge your phone based on solar cells, mm -hmm. is now helping people in education. Mm -hmm. It's helping them to do uh, proper health measures. Mm -hmm. It's helping them to do commerce. Mm -hmm. I've Thank seen you. it in India. 
it's helping them with banking. So many services all of a sudden become available to them. They have actually low, fairly low financial flow with it. Smartphone apps are cheap, as is trickle power supply from stored solar power. The latter can be rolled out faster than power grids can be expanded, and power grid expansion would be more expensive anyway. But because it's so cheap, small amounts of stored solar power don't actually increase GDP much. It just doesn't show up as major economic growth. Yet, people's lives are massively improved. They suddenly have access to education, healthcare, and entertainment in their pockets. This revolution of solar and cell phones in developing countries has thus improved well-being much faster than it has increased economic growth there. Interestingly, in Europe and the US, that's not the case. So in our case, despite the mobile phone and smartphone, it seems we are not having that increase. And the interesting question is why? So smartphones are making Africans happier by helping them meet their basic needs. But in the West, our basic needs were already met. Now, many Europeans and North Americans seem to be unhappier than they were, say, a decade ago. Their well-being is stagnant or dropping. Bert says that's partly because our higher needs, like identity, are not properly met. Growing inequity means that citizens feel a growing gap. We know that inequity in the US and Europe has increased as part of the whole globalization and privatization move over the last 30 years or so. For many people, this is obviously a reason of concern. Why? Because many people think that they see all kinds of, too many actually, of foreign people in their neighborhood. They see that their children may have no jobs. And at the same time, they see that many people are coming in young, ambitious, wanting to have jobs. Mm. So we know for the Netherlands, for Germany, for France, I know for those places, that many young people, although we intellectuals, of course, do not really appreciate this feeling because many of us are in good circumstances, we are globalizing, we are benefiting, but many of them are not benefiting. Mm. And for many of them, I think this is quite a threat. These are all stories about existing places undergoing change. But what if you had a blank slate? What if you could build a city from scratch? The idea is not just a thought experiment. New megacities are going up right now in Asia and Africa. What should they look like? Reinald Bork is an economist at the University of Potsdam. He agrees with Bert that the market left up to its own devices, will not produce the ideal city. Suppose you're a social planner and you can, you know, um, sort of devise the optimal city. You know, then you can ask, well, what's the city structure that, given that everybody optimizes in their private way, will produce the optimal outcome from a social point of view? If we don't do anything and we just let the market uh, work its way, right, then cities are going to be too sprawled because people don't take into account these 
externalities, the fact that um, commuting and, and living in, in nice big apartments uh, needs energy and that pollutes and so on. So we um, should make cities denser and more compact. Reinald has investigated what an ideal city would look like from the perspective of energy consumption. And it turns out to look a bit like a drop of chocolate or maybe a stalagmite, a giant spike in the middle tapering off on all sides. In other words, there would be skyscrapers in the center and there would only be one center and commuters would live in buildings that gradually get smaller as the distance to the center grows. The, the optimal city is you know, taller in the center than it would be without any regulation. Taller buildings are more energy efficient than, you know, if you compare a big uh, high-rise building and maybe attached to a building next to it, then it's you know, much more energy efficient than a single-family detached building. Now, of course, no city looks like this. Many cities have multiple centers, for instance. And that's a key criticism of model-based economics, which leaves out lots of stuff. We'll get to that in a moment. For now, it's important to remember the old adage in science, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So what did Reinald find out? To start with, even European cities should be slightly denser by around 18% meaning that buildings, for instance, could be slightly taller, at least towards improving the efficiency of energy consumption. But then you might have a trade-off if you have to build over green spaces to improve density. We want to have green spaces, but they come at the cost of urban density and hence energy efficiency. So what you put into the model really matters. Here's what Reinald said about pollution. If pollution is efficiently priced, then um, the ent entire question of what, what's the effect of urban structure is pretty much irrelevant from an economic point of view because we would say, well, emission is just priced um, at its you know, optimal level, so therefore people can just live wherever they want. They make the correct choices given the economic incentives they, they have. But if it's not priced, right, um, in, in, in most countries I would claim it's not priced at its efficient level, right, so then this question becomes relevant. And, and basically in the model we're just assuming that uh, we have an unregulated equilibrium where everybody makes their private choices and there's no price at all on, on pollution. The question is whether people want to have high-rises. Most European cities don't. And high-rise residential buildings in Europe are often unattractive. Americans, in contrast, love to live in skyscrapers from San Francisco to Manhattan. Reinald's model does not take account of any of this. One thing we don't have in the model is that, so in the model people just care about the uh, amount of floor space, you know. They don't care whether they live in a high-rise or low-rise building. So. Mm -hmm. I think that could be built into the model, and, and clearly that um, differs from place to place, you know. So I think compared to the U.S., probably Europeans are pretty willing to live in dense buildings, but maybe not in high-rise buildings. Mm -hmm. In the end, we see that what works in one place might not work in another. Local knowledge is needed, and that involves local people. Population growth will require many new cities to be built, and climate change will force many existing ones to relocate.
In other words, people may end up experiencing climate change as a great wave of migration. The 2017 Potsdam Summer School was hosted by the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, the Alfred Wegener Institute, the German Research Center for Geosciences, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the University of Potsdam in cooperation with the capital city of Potsdam. The music you are listening to is A Perceptible Shift by Andy Cohen and the water you heard was recorded at the Dreisam River. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if so, tell your friends and share links to the show on social media. For now, this is Craig Morris, Senior Fellow at the IASS, signing off.